Welcome to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight. We are the retro talk program for nostalgia and baby boomer stuff right here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. I'm Smitty. I'm Mike. And I'm George. And we welcome you to our program today. We're so pleased to have you with us. We're going to be with you for an hour today. We've got a program with some topics that we hope you'll find interesting. And as you just heard, the gang's all here. So uh, let's get to it. You know, we're Coming up here to the end of the year, 2016, as we go to air, actually as we go to recording on this uh, Saturday morning here at the Galaxy Nostalgia Network Studios, and uh, we're kind of covering some of the events here of the past year that happened uh, the second half of the year. We're kind of catching up a little bit. And one of those uh, was an interesting story that uh, perhaps you've heard, and that is that CBS, you know, CBS TV and radio, well, CBS is leaving the radio broadcasting business. They've decided to sell off their radio operation after close to 90 years in operation. Now, this is kind of big news for us. We're all radio guys that uh, enjoy the history of radio and enjoy seeing uh, what's happening in the in the business. And it's a little uh, it's a little sad to hear this. CBS has been around for, as we just said, close to 90 years. Really, the uh, NBC radio network doesn't exist anymore. It disappeared about 20 years ago, and as did the mutual broadcasting system. So these uh, iconic mediums of communication are slowly vanishing. CBS decided to sell that off to focus on other other ventures that they're involved in. Of course, they're involved in, in numerous things. And, Mike, um, you and I were talking about this uh, actually several days ago. This is just part of the change that's happening with mass communications. That uh, and it's sad for you and I, and I know for George too. But it's sad for you and I because we, we, uh, you know, we love radio. We love what radio was. We don't exactly love what it's turned into. It's developed into something that's kind of a monster. But uh, let's uh, talk a little bit, and then we'll bring George in on this topic, uh, who'll share some business insight with us. But it's sad. It's a sad turn of events. Time presses on. We need progress. We have to always look to the future. But when you grew up looking to the news as something that was not some profit-generating, big-business, corporate-owned, bean-counter type operation that was supposed to make money, but an instrument or a device or a vehicle to let the people know what was happening in a true and a thoughtful manner, it's disturbing, Smitty, that CBS is almost the was was not is was the last bastion of true purity and news purisms, and uh, it's sad to see that go. But I understand it's about business. I understand it's about bottom line. I understand it's about keeping the stockholders happy. But it yeah. is a loss. It's like losing an old rel- relative or a good friend, Smitty, and it, it's. It pains me because I grew up listening to CBS, and of course we've talked a lot about NBC quite a bit. NBC was my favorite of choice, but you think of CBS and you think of Walter Conkright, Robert Trout, Douglas Edwards, the the superstars, uh, Murrow. Murrow, yeah. 
And you go back and you say, well, would they have lived or would they have worked in a time where it was uh, share points? How many listeners? How many of this or that? No, it was a different time. It was a prehistoric time as far as mass media now. The, what do they call it? The mass media now? Yeah. The multi-big mainstream media. Yeah, mainstream media. Mainstream media. media. Where's the mainstream at? Because I don't want to jump in. No, me But neither. without CBS, uh, here we go again. Uh, the the argument is everybody's their own journalist now. Everybody gets on, starts a blog or a podcast or one of these instruments of getting information out. You can go somewhere anywhere now. As long as you've got a smartphone and a connection, you can broadcast live at the scene of a dreadful accident right Absolutely. down at your corner. So, sure. yeah, CBS I News necessary. I think pure news will always be necessary. But I, I think it's an extinct species. It sure seems to be that way, Mike. And I think, you know, we've heard a lot of the early recordings, uh, Murrow and Alan Jackson and Robert Trout and all the CBS and, of course, the NBC newscasters, as well as different era when they seem to really to cover the news. And we've, we've heard a lot about it, uh, especially just with this recent election just passed, uh, that, uh, you know, how much of it really is news and how much of it is just, uh, you know, being a pundit. Uh, which is not really, you know, you really can't get a, a, a good source of uh, of news, it seems, anymore. But it's sad to see CBS leave. It was uh, really, as you said, the last bastion of uh, network uh, radio uh, that was uh, around. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to completely disappear, but it, it, I believe it's probably going to change in some in some way or another. They have the hourly news. They have still have news features. And we remember, uh, of course, when... Uh, when television was coming in, that CBS really was the last network to hang on right. with soap operas and with uh, feature, you know, with uh, you know regular programs, Gunsmoke and and Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, and all the programs that, and that was due to uh, William Paley, who was the uh, the chairman of CBS, mm-hmm. who uh, was at its helm for so many years. He believed in radio, and he kept CBS going uh, when NBC began dumping all their. Radio programs are just a real sad time and kind of turning more and more time over to the affiliates. CBS was still with it. They were still hanging in there. They were still providing a quite a, a program schedule. You all remember in the 60s, Arthur Godfrey and Art Linkletter and, and even Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney had a, a daytime program on CBS in the 1960s. So we're seeing now that there's no entertainment on CBS radio anymore. It's all news, but it is a sad turn of events. And, George, we were talking with you earlier before we went on the air. You know, there's a whole business side to this, obviously, that that's motivating this. Uh, uh, share with us some of your thoughts about this. I know you, you have a very good insight on this, and perhaps you might be able to shed a little bit of light on the what's happening as far as the business end of this goes. Of course. Well, in the context of finance and financial administration, It is not uncommon for companies to uh, spin off or divest themselves of an operation that is perceived to be underperforming and thereby might be absorbing a disproportionate amount of uh, financial as well as human and intellectual capital. So it's not uncommon to see this type of corporate restructuring occur with the express objective of raising the financial performance of the parent company by divesting or separating itself from the underperforming unit. The second item, however, is that in some cases, when such a separation or divestiture occurs, it is also with the express purpose of unlocking the value of that enterprise that might otherwise be obscured in the context of a 
conglomerate, even in the case of a media conglomerate. And then finally, there is a third consideration in which a separation or a divestiture allows that unit to operate on its own to determine whether it in fact can be viable and self-sustaining. And if it is unable to be viable or self-sustaining under its current format, then it is forced to make major decisions uh, of a survival nature to see maybe it needs to morph or change into something else entirely. And it can do so a lot easier as a separate standalone entity than it otherwise would in a corporate family where a lot of gamesmanship and politics come into play you know, where there's competition for capital. In today's financial environment, you know, where you have Kickstarter and so many other uh, do-it-yourself financial vehicles, uh, it would be a lot easier for such an entity, I think, to gain traction and perhaps maybe in a smaller form than it was previously uh, operating. But nevertheless, it could find a, a different niche. I think there's, uh, George, you'll probably agree with this, there's a certain amount of uh, of bloodletting, if you will, as they prepare for a sale. My, our wonderful friend, Shotgun Tom Kelly, who's been on our show numerous times and who's, who's one of our dear friends, has recently uh, uh, announced his full retirement from K-Earth up in Los Angeles. K-Earth is a CBS-owned and operated station. And in fact, they have let all of their air talent go. And that has been in preparation for a sale to make K-Earth look more profitable. Of course. Uh, you know, George, you would... I remember being in investment banking. We used to talk about this, calling it, you know, clearing the deck. Right. You want to clear the deck so that, uh, you know, the balance sheet, the cash flow statement, and the income statements will all appear to be more pristine and of a higher nature. You can get a higher valuation. And that's just kind of a really mechanical uh, way of looking at it. I, I guess I'm, I'm probably an old-fashioned humanist, as I think probably all of us here in the studio are. But just what a shame to lose the lose that air talent and lose that that connection with the public. You know, uh, uh, Shotgun was a uh, ambassador for okay. K Earth for the last couple of years, and coming off of a regular shift, uh, he was making more public appearances. Now, you know, that's all come to an end now. So, kind of the the connection with the public seems to come to an end. Well, and also you've got generations, not necessarily our generation, but generations after us. There's names for all of them, the X-Gen, the Y-Gen, the Yuppies, the Millennials. Not naming names, however, today's listening audience primarily gets their news from Twitter or social media outlets, and they're not on the radio. Although CBS comes through on an app, you can get the CBS app, but uh, they're not listening to radios for their news. They're not watching television and rushing home at 5 o'clock or at 7 o'clock to hear Cronkite because they're getting the news everywhere every time from hundreds and hundreds of different sources with thousands and thousands of different views. Yeah. So uh, the uh, the lake is muddied, and I can see precisely and clearly, don't get me wrong, why CBS is doing what they're doing. They're a business. They're a company. They're supposed to be making money. It's just unfortunate that that's not how CBS News started out. There was nothing more spine-chilling, Smitty, and you've ta- you and I have talked about this many times, to be, be sitting home doing your homework. It's about 4.30 on a Thursday afternoon, and all of a sudden, Channel 2, you're watching House Party. Well, that was at 2.30, Art Linklater's House Party, and all of a sudden, the screen goes black, and now all you see is the eye, mm-hmm. the CBS eye. 
This is a special bulletin from CBS News headquarters yes. in New York. Right. Yes. You, your skin started to crawl. Mm. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. What is it? Mm-hmm. Nobody gets their skin to crawl anymore because there's breaking Fox News. This is a Fox News alert. Oh, yeah. This is a Fox News alert, uh, whatever. And it's really not a breaking news item, but they got to keep feeding. That's how they brand Feeding yeah. that monster. Every, yeah. Feeding that Everything monster. Everything is yeah. on alert. Yeah. Gilbert, I have a question for you. Yes. And because we're sitting here in this wonderful studio and I'm looking uh, at the wall here and I see a lot of plaques here from KNX... 1070 AM news radio out of Los Angeles. This is a station that I have grown up with for more than 50 years. And in fact, uh, now that I have returned here to Southern California and I'm here all the time, I listen to KNX uh, to get my news. Uh, you know, when I'm either I'm in the car or I'm in my office. So my question for you is not knowing the full details of this uh, announcement. What does this mean for KNX news, which is an all news station out of LA? Oh, yeah. And they have and you have them here on your wall to prove it, have won numerous awards uh, over the years. And it was to my understanding, they were profitable. I think they are profitable, George. And and, uh, in my opinion, to answer your question, I think that remains to be seen. I think that what will happen is whoever takes over KNX and some of the other CBS-owned and operated stations, whoever takes that over, will probably keep that news format because it is a viable format. It's a service. It's a profitable format for the station mm-hmm. i think it'll that they will continue that whether there'll be a change in the structure how they do things whether they'll even pull news from cbs radio from the national network which may totally go away that remains to be seen but my thought would be that they will continue to do news mm-hmm. it'll still be the news station that we've all come to know and love you know and uh, as you said they've been doing it now for 50 years uh, close to 50 years in fact we did a program uh, a while back about the the uh, what was it mike the 45th anniversary 45th. of knx yeah doing doing news so i think they'll remain the same george that's my opinion mike i don't know if you have a, a different opinion uh, uh, or, or if you have any thoughts on that i i tend to think that they'll continue to do news one way or another they can't make news go away right exactly. it, won't, it just won't it won't resemble the news we know again i i grew up listening to knx at night and sure. knx they would that was your source of news, KNX and KFI. And they're very consistent because, they, for example, you know that sports is going to come on at so, at so many minutes after the hour or the half hour. Same yeah. thing with stock market report sure. and traffic reports and well, so sure. forth. And th- that's why I'm wondering about it. Now, well, I guess... And it was personality driven. You'll have to agree with that because you and I, as L.A. boys, KLAC, you stopped everything you were doing at 420 in the afternoon so you could listen to Jim Healy. Yes. Mm-hmm. You didn't yes. care about the sports. You wanted to hear Jim Healy, he, who he... Usually it was Georgia Fronteri he was going after, but he was personality-driven. That's what your sports guy. On TV, it was Tom Harmon. Well, I recall, uh, and this is actually through my father, although I do recollect this. I mean, I'm old enough to remember this, that my father said that before KNX went to its all-news format, that uh, they had a gentleman who was uh, a radio disc jockey, and his name was... Bob Crane. Yes. You knew him, of course, for the role as Colonel Hogan on Hogan's Heroes. Oh, okay. and, that, sure. and that he had that role from basically ni- the late 50s all yeah. the way up to 1965 when he took the role to go to Hogan's Heroes. And I think it was shortly after that that CBS changed its, excuse me, KNX changed its format uh, because of that. But my father tells me that he remembers that he heard about the passing of Tyrone Power in 1958. Uh, Bob Crane interrupting his program to share that sad news. And 
then later on as a small child, I remember listening to Bob Crane with my dad in the mornings. And then, of course, it went to the all-news format, which it's had, as you said, almost 50 years. Yeah, yeah. 1968, they went to the uh, to the all-news format. and uh, George yeah, Nicola. George Nicola, who was the general manager of KNX. He was amazing. Excellent gentleman who brought a lot of neat innovation and who also loved radio. He, mm-hmm. he was really a radio man. And so it'll remain to be seen exactly what will happen at KNX. You know what this reminds me of as we look at this is that with the shedding of this talent that you just mentioned earlier with Shotgun Tom and others like him being basically uh, uh, told to go elsewhere, you have to wonder what is in a name. I I mean that the the brand value is based on the human and intellectual capital. And if that is suddenly moved aside, all you're buying is just a name. And yeah. if there's nothing behind that, then I wonder about the long-term viability of this. Well, I see a news model, perhaps not foundation with CBS in the near future, but a news model that will involve citizen journalist contribution. I, I don't know a morning that will go by without seeing footage of a dreadful wreck or a fire or some horrible mishap or a lost person or a missing hiker where the footage has a little tag, a little mm-hmm. chyron up at the top, mm-hmm. uh, video by Joe Smith or video by SoCal News. These are, we used mm-hmm. to call them stringers. I know because I was one. But that generates because, number one, there's no overhead. You don't have to pay anybody mm-hmm. to go out and wait for eight hours a night like we did at KFI on Nightside wait for something to happen, race over to it and make it work. You've got people out there, freelancers, for $75 or $125 that will go out and cover your story and actually will call it in on their phone and talk about it. So you get a cadre of those type contributors, people, citizen journalists, but these are more than citizens. These are professional guys. I've met some of them. And uh, they've got gear that you can fit in a in a backpack where we needed a whole truck exactly back in my day. So yeah. we might see actually entrepreneurial yeah. activity. This is George Halalakos live in Little Tonga Canyon for KNX Radio. Mm-hmm. I, I, that is coming, folks. That's the new killer app when it comes to uh, news and cutting all that top-heavy overload personnel help that for years was the bane of uh, major news networks. Yeah. I, and that just about bankrupted ABC. Yeah. Well, this is common to all generations, isn't it, gentlemen? We don't like meetings. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. <laughs> or bureaucracy. And, yeah. and it just seems to be, to me, and we'll, we'll end this segment with this thought, if we may, uh, it just seems like trying to mix oil and water. Uh, you know, there's personality-driven, as Micah said, where we come to know and love our favorite DJs or on-air personalities, and then there's the side where they want to uh, lighten the load and pay as little as possible and make it as profitable as possible, and it just becomes kind of a, again, it's like trying to mix oil and water. Somehow, to me, in my mind, it doesn't quite work, but it's done, and that's how it goes. Well, I was once told, and this was when I was at KTLA, I was told by a fellow, and I won't, well, Stan Chambers. I remember him. Stan Chambers. May he he rest well. I, I learned so much from that man. But he told me that news always has been and always will be a necessary evil in professional broadcasting, be it radio or television. Interesting. And when I knew him, it was back in the days where you had three networks in L.A. but yeah. And four independents, <clears throat> but he was right. It's a necessary evil. Other than, than dropping sponsors, 
And this horrible 15-car collision with five fatalities is brought to you by the fine people at oh. Ben & Jerry's Ice Cream. You can't do that. You cannot do that. Even in no. regular news reads, no. you can do it on the hard breaks. Sure. On color radio. But KFWB. not in the context of the uh, distribution yeah. of the content. Not in the nut of the story or not in the in the gut of the story. But he was absolutely right. I thought about that for many years. Well, wouldn't they want people to know the news? They really don't care because they can't make any money. Because these aren't news guys running these corporations. Exactly. They're bean counters. They're bean counters, yeah. exactly, which is... Uh, uh, Paley was not a bean counter. He was not. He was not. He, he, he counted the beans... Fred Friendly a was a bean counter. Yeah, he <laughs> counted the beans to a certain extent, yeah. but uh, he knew that radio was something yeah. important. He counted the beans because they weren't really his beans. Exactly. And he had to right. count for them. Yeah, you're right. So anyway, so stay tuned to your... Uh, stay tuned with us and stay tuned to your uh, news sources, and you'll hear more about this story as it develops here in the coming year. Well, let's pause right now for a retro commercial, and we'll come back with more of Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight right here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. If you had a friend who was a king, what kind of a gift would you give him? Well, there are many people of prominence who have been thrilled to receive this. Zenith's famous nine-band transoceanic. The world's most exciting radio. Powered to tune in the world. You'll find every Zenith radio from the famous Transoceanic to the tiniest pocket transistor is built in the Zenith quality tradition, including super-sensitive FM-AM radios, handsome table and clock radios, and powerful solid-state portables. Over 100 radios to choose from, priced to fit every gift budget. At Zenith, the quality goes in before the name goes on. If you're buying a radio for a king, a friend, or for yourself, why not get the best? And welcome back. This is George Halalakos, along with my good friends, Gilbert Smitty-Smith and Mike Bragg. We're here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network today talking about late-night talk radio. You know, this is an interesting genre, and if you grew up here in Southern California during the 1960s and 1970s, there were a number of iconic nighttime radio personalities that uh, really were the ones that helped to promote the phenomena of late-night talk radio, which, of course, has now become nationwide. And along uh, with that development, um, we were able to see a number of major events here in Southern California, as well as on the national scene, associated with the rise of these great stars. I'm remembering, of course, Ray Bream, Hilly Rose, and Joe Pine, just to name a few. Mike, why don't you tell us about some of your recollections of some of these great personalities from the past? I was a Hilly Rose guy. If you're Southern California and you grew up on AM radio, you had to have known about Hilly Rose, who I believe is still around, still with us, Hilly Rose. Yes. Yeah. Hilly Rose was, he would do a little politics, but he would talk about the unknown. He was very entertaining, but entertainment was the key to nighttime talk radio. He had a restaurant program along with that, I remember. Yeah, he did. Absolutely. Hilly Rose. And the my other favorite, because growing up, before as a teenager, I would stay at my grandparents' house all the time, and they were big fans of Dennis Prager. Now, he was a talk radio host that he talked about religion, and that's all he talked, religion and politics, but uh, he was a talk show guy, Prager, and he would be on Sunday nights. So you had, just like TV, or just like you had your favorite people, 
Talk radio, of course, was personality-driven, but it got really crazy in the 60s. It got crazy in the 60s and the 70s. When I say crazy, I mean shouting, and I mean people flipping out. Ray Bream, he'd get a little bug. There was a guy named Bob Grant, and you may remember Bob Grant from KABC way back. And they would chide listeners to call in. Yes, and that's when, in the days when they called it KABC two-way two radio. Two-way radios. Two-way radios. Yeah. There wasn't even call yeah. talk radio. It no. said, this is two-way radio. Yeah. Two-way radio, and it was two-way, and they blew the speakers off because they would get in an argument back and forth, and they would tell people, uh, you know, get off the phone and go gargle some razor blades. That was Joe Pine. Joe Pine. Joe Pine. But uh, Ray Bream had his own. He was kind of a snarky guy in a way, but he had good content. And he had a following. That was the key to the success of the late-night talk guys. They had a following. And a lot of these people were, we'll just say it, they were very nocturnal, these listeners. They were people who had insomnia. These were people who were lonely. These were people who worked the graveyard shift. They were sitting at a guard station outside of TRW in Torrance or somewhere. And their radio was their only friend until daylight, till the day crew came in. That that was their connection to the world. And that brought a lot to people. The nighttime talk people, the guys and the gals, they really had something going because I remember the graveyard shifts. I was working at Occidental College. Mm -hmm. And I was going to school in the daytime and goofing around and not really taking... because I was a janitor in the library of Occidental College. And that was a creepy place, folks. If you're familiar with Occidental College, it had the old buildings from 1920. Mm-hmm. Oh, neat. And there were things that I think, that I sensed that were happening. And as long as I had Ray Bream or I had one of the talk guys, Hilly Rose Overnight, I felt better. But lonely people, insomniacs, troubled people, a lot of suicidal people. But the majority were crackpots. And they would call up, and it would get interesting. I think, you know, 45 years later, I'm positive that a lot of those callers were placed there. They were ringers. George? It's possible. Jump in here. Yeah, but I will tell you, I I got into talk radio uh, through KFI, because what would happen is that the Dodger games were broadcast on KFI, 50,000-watt clear channel, and then what would happen is that on, on the late... Dodger games that would run into maybe extra innings, Hilly Rose would come on. And Hilly Rose, I always enjoyed the programs where he was interviewing people. I didn't really care for people calling in. In fact, to this day, I still, I don't care when people call in. I prefer to actually listen to the interview itself. I find that far more interesting. But Hilly Rose had a great show about local restaurants. And for those of you that grew up in Southern California, there are a lot of great restaurants that exist to this day that you uh, now see and hear about on the Food Network. And it was great because he would interview the proprietors uh, and the great chefs of these restaurants. And it was a lot of fun to, uh, to be able to learn about that. And then he did other interesting topics like old-time radio. He had uh, my godbrother and Gilbert, your good friend, Christy Limbesis, was yeah. a regular on that program. And then he would interview people from the past, uh, whether it might be film stars of the past or radio personalities or sports personalities. And it was really very uh, much a uh, very personal aspect to it. Later on, as I got older, 
I myself became a big fan of Ray Breen. Now, at that time, I was in college at USC. And what I remember was that, you know, on some of those late nights, you know, you'd, you'd be listening to Ray Breen. And he was very interesting because he was into aviation and space technology, which, of course, is a lifelong interest of mine. And then he also uh, had a great influence on bringing people to the audience that uh, you might not otherwise get a chance to hear on a recurring basis. I found, for example, that uh, Ronald Reagan, who I had the pleasure of working with later on when he ran for president in 1980, I remember that Ray Bream had Ronald Reagan on there on a regular basis. And you really got a chance to learn about him, not just in terms of his political view, but about personal things. And you came to appreciate them almost as, as a friend. And similarly, Ray Bream did the same thing with uh, Saving the Spruce Goose, which, of course, now is in an aerospace museum up in Oregon. But they were going to destroy this venerable aircraft, cut it up into parts. And Ray Bream was the one that organized a mass public funding drive to help rescue the aircraft and, and save it from that. So we saw talk radio at that point as something that was a guilty pleasure, perhaps, something that I learned about from talking with my fellow classmates at USC, because they said, oh, wow, you listen to Ray Bream also? Oh, yeah, of course. There's not really a lot else on at that time. No, no. And, you know, it does seem that uh, most of the talk radio now, the late night talk radio, there's people that, you know, yelling and calling in and maybe not as much as there used to be in the Joe Pine days and things like that, but it all really began... uh, Late Night Talk Radio began with a man named Herb Jepko, who uh, had a program that was that was called Nightcaps. First went on the air in 1964 from radio station KSL in Salt Lake City, Utah. And in contrast with people uh, yelling and being argumentative, Herb Jepko's program was very low-key. It was a friendly program. You called into chat. No controversial issues were allowed. It was very, very, you know, and they had regulars that would call in. Eventually, he was picked up by the Mutual Broadcasting System in the mid-'70s and was on Mutual for a while. However, um, Mutual wanted him to uh, to sort of spice it up and uh, begin to do more controversial topics, and Herb Jebico absolutely refused. He, mm, he, he had, he had a, his format that he liked where it was people were calling. It was just like one big friendly family. Mm-hmm. Finally, he went off the air from uh, Mutual, and he continued to uh, be on the air a little uh, bit longer in a syndicated format. Mm -hmm. But it all goes back uh, to him, and Herb Jepko's departure from Mutual led to the arrival of someone whom we're all familiar with, and that is Larry King. Larry King came in to the Mutual Broadcasting Mm -hmm. System as basically as Herb Jepko's replacement. Um, after there was another program that was sort of in the middle there, but then Larry King came on. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, I've always been a late-night guy, and uh, a lot of that time was spent listening to radio as I was working on other old radios and doing things in the workshop. And uh, I used to listen to Larry King. I didn't – I'll be honest here, I'll, just, just my opinion. I didn't particularly like Larry King, but he had the only program on the air that had any semblance to old-time radio, mm-hmm. a live national program where people were calling in, they were talking about different things. Mm-hmm. Again, I didn't really care a lot for... I, I know Larry King could be a little rude to some of his listeners, uh, cut them off and things like that, which I didn't care for. But it was neat because it was, again, it was kind of like listening to old-time radio. There were the station breaks and you'd hear the news at the top and bottom of the hour and it was just kind of a kind of a neat experience. So 
uh, I remember listening to a lot of the Larry King show simply because it was there. It was something, it was a neat experience to hear it. But, you know, but a lot of that has been, has been, uh, uh, marked by uh, you know controversial you know people calling and yelling and disagreements and things like that but nowadays to a certain extent we have George Norrie and yes the, very, uh, exactly the coast to coast program yeah coast to coast yeah and i personally myself i will tell you that i prefer uh mr norrie's predecessor art bell art bell of course art yes art bell to me when he would do his interview segments uh were so wonderful in fact to this very day on saturday evenings they have a program called somewhere in time with yes, art bell yes. and so a lot of times you'll have an opportunity to hear the entire broadcast from say september 21st 1996 and it's interesting to think about what you were doing at that time. And he'll talk about topics of the day. And it's always interesting when they interview people. As I said, I don't care for the for the phone calls, and mm-hmm. I'm not and I'm not one to diminish interaction. But I find that the tempo diminishes. Mm-hmm. I like it when they're able to interview the uh, person who is either an author or maybe an inventor or whatever field of endeavor they're in. And I'm interested in hearing them. And I would say to you, Gilbert, that. I feel the same way about Larry King for all the reasons that you noted. But what I found interesting was that when King would allow his guest to talk, and if it was, it could be someone like Tommy Lasorda, you know, the manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers when they won the World Series, or someone else of that stature. And basically, you listen to it to hear the person or the guest. Right. And I and I, that's that's what I found very uh, you know really fun about that. But what I think is interesting is to find out how many people like yourself and like ourselves were listening to this and that what you found out is that it was a forum it was like a guilty pleasure if you will. If you had to get up really early in the morning because sometimes I had to do that if I was involved with a research project, then you'd hear the tail end of the Ray Bream program. Right. Or if you were working late, you heard the beginnings of the program. For sure. Or maybe sure. if you you know got up in the middle of the night or something, you couldn't sleep, especially those hot summer nights here in Southern California, you put on the radio and there's the program. And it's interesting because, uh, as Mike pointed out uh, a few minutes ago, there's a whole you know, nationwide community of people out there that are up late at night for one reason or another. Either they're working, either they're insomniacs, some of them are a little bit wacky, if I can put it that way. And some people are just very lonely. They're very lonely. They have no one. They have no family, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps no friends. And these people that call up and these hosts that are on the air become family. They become the people that they rely on every day to have social interaction. They do. They do. And I would say that in some cases, if you have uh, certain callers that have a recurring presence and that they develop a good enough rapport with the host, that oftentimes they themselves can become contributors because maybe they have a particular area of interest or expertise that may actually provide added value to the program. So I think it's uh, it's a fascinating topic uh, when we look at late night uh, talk radio because I, I often wonder if this actually has helped to basically you know presage now the generation of which we're now a part of you know with podcasts mm-hmm. uh, that uh, have been able to promote specialty programming because a lot of these programs that we talked about they were broad based interests that's what was so interesting about Hilly Rose who Mike said was his favorite. I mean, you know, one night he might talk about restaurants. Another night it might sure. be about something with the paranormal. Another night um, it might be something on the political side, but not too politicky, if you right. will. Exactly. Yeah. And 
I thought it was very interesting. Now, Ray Bream, he was obviously a bit more political. But even when he had on, uh, for example, Ronald Reagan, who was a frequent uh, guest on that program, I believe also when he was governor as well. Is that not right, Mike? That, that Reagan came on when he was governor as California? Or was it just afterwards, uh, prior to when he ran he for president? He campaigned for Reagan for governor. So I'm not sure if he came on during or shortly after. Mm-hmm. But he was very active in the campaign because in California, he would have the liberals call who wanted to chase Ronald Reagan out on a rail or send him to the nut house. And Ray Bream would, he would attract the nuts. So I think he was placed there. I don't know by who. But a lot of these figures were there for political stimulation to get audience. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you've got a late night audience. The you need share, to drive the numbers. Yeah, the share drops off considerably on the overnight. Anybody who's worked an overnight in in music radio broadcast knows that you've got maybe 150 people out there listening, and they listen because they like you, and they listen because they've got nothing else to do or they're too drunk to go to sleep or whatever the case may be. Well, with the talk radio guys, it was the same thing. They had to keep feeding the belly of the beast mm-hmm. and keep enticing people to call. And even Bream would get crazy people that were not crazy, but crazy. The lady, she'd call, hey, Ray, it's, it's Ruthie Allen in Monrovia. And, you know, I'm hearing the chirping noises again. And mm. I, I know the gamma. <laughs> I know the gamma rays are coming down, and I know that it's way it's raining, so I can't put the tin foil on the roof. And he would let her go for a while, and he would laugh and okay, honey, thanks. Okay, get back. That and was he, part of the. I was basically was the stick. part of the program. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. I think what's interesting, we think about coast to coast, and and uh, Gilbert, I was going to mention to you that I recall during the 1980s. Uh, KBC, which then evolved from two-way radio to KBC talk radio, mm-hmm. that they had a gentleman by the name of Bill Jenkins, mm-hmm. and he yeah. hosted a program titled Open Mind. Mm-hmm. I had uh, actually been on Bill Jenkins' program when he substituted for Michael Jackson during the daytime, and then I followed him at night, and he did a program exclusively on the paranormal. Mm-hmm. That's why it was titled Open Mind. Okay. And I think that this presaged the Coast to Coast program, which I believe Art Bell was the founder and the creator yes, of that. Uh-huh. Right. And so it's interesting to see how these talk show hosts, it's sort of a chicken and egg question. You know, were they reflecting the interests of the time or were they trying to fill in time and then just trying to see where the demographic uh, interests would take them. Yeah, that's an interesting, uh, interesting question, uh, George and Art Bell and and George Norrie and all that. They have presented, and they present very interesting topics. You know, uh, I love it when they have authors on there that sure. have written, uh, you know, books about you know about space travel or sure, aviation yeah. or paranormal. Sure, it's remarkable. And they've done even things. I know I've actually recorded. I think one of the George Norrie Coast to Coast programs where they had uh, where they were talking about the uh, Twilight Zone, the TV uh, show. Oh yes, because they've had Mark Zakaria. Mark Zakaria has been a has been a guest on there mm-hmm. on numerous occasions, and so uh, the volume of material is just really great. You know, there's, there's, they'll probably never run out of it. I think this is where Hilly Rose came into play, uh, uh, Mike, because as I recall, it was through Hilly Rose that a lot of people that we remember but had sort of kind of faded away and, and before multimedia uh, avenues were available, that Hilly Rose actually provided a segue for these people to make a return to the public and say, gee, whatever became of so-and-so. Sure. I know that my, my godbrother, Christy Limbessis, uh, played a role in that because when he was on Healy Rose, he provided the um, segue to bring in old-time radio shows that had been forgotten. Right. I mean, or, or radio stars, rather, that had been forgotten. 
and uh, were able to come back and be guest stars. Well, and there, it was very keen competition in the overnight talk shows, in L.A. anyway, because we had KFI, KMPC, KABC, and we had the smaller one, KIEV. Yes, KIEV. That, that was George the San, Putnam. In the, sorry, in the San Fernando Valley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then until he moved down to San Diego, we had a fellow, a colorful guy named Bill Balance. I remember sure. Bill Balance, of sure, course. Yeah. And a lot of these guys had, had evolved from being DJs, record spinners on AM radio, Top 40, to getting because of their followers. If you grew up in Southern California in the 50s and 60s, you knew about KFWB Color Radio. There were certain guys on there that you liked. B. Mitchell Reed, you know, Joe Yoakum, Bill Balance. Well, Bill Balance moved on, and they created their own subgenre. It yes. was where Ray Bream was baiting people or getting into uh, political airway fistfights with people. Bill Balance, he took a spin, and he uh, advice for the lovelorn. And he had a perfect audience because I think probably 70% of the overnight listening share were lonely people, yeah. either at work by themselves alone or people that just had no one. So Bill O, and I knew him well, very well. I got half of his record collection, but uh, he came up with uh, Femme Forum, and that just blasted away because he became a household word. These These lonely ladies would call him, and he would talk very tongue-in-cheek, thought-provoking things that the FCC found in the gray area, but they never kicked him off the air. But he would talk to these ladies. And it'd be 2 in the morning, and you'd have a lady crying because her husband just you know, left her for mm-hmm. the secretary. And Bill would settle her down, and 15 other people would call. It's so you don't have a bit. So amazing how to create a subgenre. And these were, as Smitty and I have talked on many shows, these were the pioneers of radio. These were AM, AM Top 40 guys. You know, Ray Bream... He did other stuff before he became a talk guy mm-hmm. involving radio. He actually was a radio advertising salesperson in Seattle. Wow. And he got a little niche and found out and got, you know, the mic went hot and he felt real comfortable at it. And pretty soon he's national syndication. But, you know, Ray Bream actually did something that uh, actually presaged the events that we've witnessed in the year 2016. <sighs> Uh, I'll just use the word insurgency, and you can make your own associations, whether it be on a global scale or a national scale. But it was interesting because Ray Bream was the one that provided the basis for Proposition 13, a measure that uh, reduced property taxes by about two-thirds here in Southern California. Oh, the Jarv- Howard Jarvis? Yes, and, yeah, it allowed, that was brain. and it allowed millions of homeowners, including my parents, to keep their home because otherwise we would have lost our home had not Proposition 13 passed. A I lot can, of people would have. I can, yeah. I can tell you that. And Ray Bream provided the segue, and now to his credit— he actually allowed people of both sides to come in and debate. But I remember during the heated discussion of Prop 13, every night he had somebody on, and then he would say, here's the contrasting views, and here's where it's going. And my point of this is, is that in those days, you didn't have the technology that you did now. Mm -hmm. It was a groundswell movement. No one thought that Prop 13 was going to pass. Why? Because the establishment was against it. But it mobilized a grassroots movement. The forgotten people, if you will, the homeowners, people, as, as you described, Mike, you know, that were working late, getting up early. Yeah, and, and Ray Bream, he was also, and you mentioned a lot of the, the figures, the political figures. Ray Bream was the face of a lot of those You remember Howard Jarvis? Of course, I was, met Mr. Jarvis. Yeah, I did, too. He was yes. the father of Prop 13. Absolutely. But he, he had the personality and the charisma of, of a bent trash can. <laughs> he looked like a walrus. He was, he was yeah, kind of greasy. Yeah, and, guy. 
dirty suits with his dandruff on. And Bream would be the point. He, yes. would, he would be the face and the voice for yep. these folks who had a major cause but couldn't reach out to the critical mass to talk about it and to, and to firm it up. So they served many purposes. Let me give you one last thought about uh, Ray Bream, George. You'll appreciate this. I used to be a member of the Society for the Preservation and Encouragement of Radio Drama, Variety, and Comedy. Oh, yeah. Spurdvac. And uh, we'd see, I'd see Chris Lambesis there every year. Ray Bream would show up at the conventions every year. and he, oh. he So he, I guess he was an old-time radio enthusiast as well. I think he so. was because I think Christy was on that program also. Oh, yeah. As yeah, well absolutely, as uh, yeah. Hilly Roses. Yeah. So that's another last thought about Ray Bream. Well, Smitty, that's, that's amazing. And I, I think we're, we're talking about late-night talk shows. It, it was called late-night talk, but now the term is hot talk. Maybe we'll not... Stay with the late night. Go a little earlier, like the late evenings. We've got some personalities we can talk about. And again, folks, if you're listening on the East Coast or the Midwest, these names aren't going to mean a lot to you. Some of them will, but some won't. But we're talking in generalities, and the subject is the um, hot talk. The guys who would be up all night and, and threaten you, dare you to call them. And when you did, <laughs> uh, the telephone receiver piece was smoldering when you hung up. But we're going to take a retro-mercial here. We're halfway through this. This is an hour show, by the way, folks, and that's why you're wondering... Where's the retromercial and why isn't this over? Well, it's not over for another while, so we're going to plug in our retromercial. You're listening to Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight. Don't go away. Come right back. We'll be right with you. I'll take Bavarian beer. Bavarian's old-style beer. Mellow Bavarian beer. I'll take Bavarian beer. But it's a man's beer. Yes, dear, but I like it, too. You do? We We like Bavarian. Bavarian. I'm the one who carries them home. It's Bavarian beer for you. Say, Jane, have you discovered that better beer? I've found out that Bavarian's old style, a man's beer, is my beer, too. It's true. Women have discovered the superb satisfaction in every mild, mellow drop of Bavarian's old style. With your first taste, you'll know. Bavarian's is for your man and you, too. Try a frosty cold glass of Bavarian's right away. Follow the steps to satisfaction. Step one, see its clear, inviting goodness. Step two, inhale its zesty, fragrant aroma. Step three, taste its mild, mellow smoothness. Yes, man and ma'am, it satisfies. It's Bavarian beer for you. Bavarian Brewing Company, Covington, Kentucky. Mm, smell its uh, zesty smell of Bavarian beer. That commercial from the 1950s, of course. Welcome back to Galaxy Moonbeam Nightside here on the Galaxy Nostalgia Network. I'm Gilbert Smitty-Smith, along with my good buddies, Mike Bragg. And George Halawakos. We are uh, in the late part of uh, 2016. We've just, as we go to record here, we've learned of the passing of an American hero who uh, we all remember from the early days of the space program. And that is, of course, John Glenn, who we lost on December 8th of 2016. We're going to turn it over to our good buddy George Halawakos for some reminiscences of him and. Uh, also, Mike and I will jump in. Let's just hear a brief clip from that launch of Friendship 7 on uh, February 20th, 1962. Godspeed, John Glenn. 10, 9, 8, 7. Six, five, four, 
Just a brief clip from the moment of liftoff of Friendship 7 that was manned by John Glenn, again on February 20th, 1962. George, let's turn it over to you, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about this great American hero. Wow, Gilbert. What a, a memorable and inspirational clip that you just shared with us. You know, this is a rather poignant time because... Again, uh, with the passing of John Glenn, we have the opportunity to once again say to him, with a different context and a different meaning, Godspeed, John Glenn. These words were first uttered by Scott Carpenter, who was the backup pilot and astronaut to John Glenn for that famous pioneering expedition. And it is something of an iconic moment uh, in America's space race versus the Soviet Union in the race to the moon. And John Glenn is one who exemplifies American exceptionalism. What I think is so special about John Glenn is that he actually was a hero before he was an astronaut. John Glenn served in both World War II and Korea. Yes, he is a member of America's greatest generation. He flew 149 combat missions in those two uh, wars. And He won the Distinguished Flying Cross, not once, not twice, not three times, on six different occasions. John Glenn also was awarded an Air Medal, and that Air Medal has 18 clusters. Here you have someone who was, again, a hero before he was an astronaut. He's among the original seven who was portrayed um, very nicely in uh, Tom Wolfe's classic about the original seven, I believe it was the right, called. The right stuff. The right yeah. stuff. And John Glenn, he was a, a gentleman that clearly had the right stuff. But it didn't end just there. Because after he uh, served so uh, honorably with America's uh, space program, he later served in the arena of politics as a distinguished United States senator from Ohio. And he served for four terms. But even then, he was not done. At age 77, after he had retired uh, from his senatorial career, he once again ventured into space. How many of you remember that he actually was a member of the space shuttle expeditions in the late 1990s? And in fact, it was this particular real-life episode that inspired the movie that featured Clint Eastwood and Tommy Lee Jones titled Space Cowboys. And so John Glenn, not just a great American, not just an exceptional American, but truly a great man, a great human being. I remember as a child uh, growing up in that era of the early 60s that when we would play pretend and invariably, if you were with me, you had to play space explorer that, you know, everybody wanted to be John Glenn. What we would do is that we were not uh, uh, pretending to be heroes that we saw on film. We were talking about people in real life, and John Glenn was America's favorite. What are your recollections, gentlemen, about uh, this wonderful man? You know, I'll start in on that, George. You know, the the passing of John Glenn takes me uh, back here to the passing of Neil Armstrong back in 2012. We're now beginning to see the passing of these astronauts, these American heroes that were so vital to our space program. And, of course, we remember John Glenn with Friendship 7 and 
during that time when uh, under President Kennedy's lead that we were beginning to make the slow but sure progress toward landing a man on the moon and his flight in Friendship 7 in 1962 was uh, certainly a very important first step uh, that he orbited the Earth and was up there showing that, that a man could go up and uh, be in orbit and come back home safely. And what a, what an important thing that was, that uh, a very first important step toward that eventual landing on the moon. And all of the other things that he accomplished, George, his being uh, a war hero and uh, being a senator and then uh, again going back later on the space shuttle, what a fulfilling life and uh, in all his 95 years that he lived. That uh, He and his wife, Annie, were married 73 years. Uh, isn't that amazing? It's remarkable. Isn't that amazing? Well, I'll tell you what, we talk about him as an American hero, an American original, a figurehead for our generations. Uh, mid-20th century. In John Glenn's time, believe me, folks, we needed a hero. You know, we had, of course, we had JFK, but we needed a, a guy. Someone. A real man. Yeah. We needed a Davy Crockett. He was it. He was and a Marine. he was the one. He, he was a Marine. Marine, veteran. My father, uh, bless his soul, uh, another diehard Marine, worshipped John Glenn. Except when it got to his political party, but my dad was able to work that out. There were only two Democrats in the history of the world my dad loved and respected and supported, JFK and John Glenn. You can take it from there about who my dad was, but he was great. But, you know, John Glenn, I, I, you talk about what an icon, what an original, what a hero. Well, no one figured that out more than John F. Kennedy who benched him from the team and would not let him go into space ever again after that flight because he was so valuable as an American hero, which is one of the reasons John Glenn retired from NASA, because he couldn't go up anymore because the president wouldn't let him. He couldn't spare him if something went wrong, in other words. Do you know there's another interesting thing about John Glenn, that he was also an example of... Um, human perseverance, and I'm not talking about in the context of his professional achievements, but I don't know how many people are aware of the fact that he originally had entered into the political arena in 1964, but he actually had to bow out of that race because he had a nasty fall uh, at home. I believe he slipped in the bathtub. And it took more than a year to recover uh, from the injuries that he suffered. And, you know, you think about uh, what happens in, in one's household. I mean, they say a lot of, you know, accidents that oftentimes are fatal occur. And again, here is an example uh, that he was able to bounce back from a personal accident that can affect any of us. But he did it in a way that the best years of his life were still ahead of him. Isn't that amazing and almost ironic? Here he was in in Earth orbit and uh, and came home safely, only to later on have an accident at home in the bathtub. Isn't that just ironic? It is ironic, yeah. and considered before that, he flew 149 yeah. combat missions in World War II and in Korea. That's how it works. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it ironic. is interesting, by the way, he made that flight of Friendship 7 look so easy and so simple, but if you read the accounts that have been brought back uh, in the aftermath of his passing that you find out that was a very difficult mission, much like what we described about uh, America's landing on the moon uh, that followed in 1969 and, and, you know, Armstrong running out of fuel. Uh, Glenn had to navigate that capsule with a a rather shaky heat shield and some other difficulties associated, uh, you know, with the uh, uh, protocols and the mechanics of, of those early space vehicles. George, just like the Apollo 11 moon landing, John Glenn's flight, there was no guarantee 
he was going to survive it. Exactly there was, there right. Was, there was a risk of loss of life. There and really was. At the was. same time, he, he knew his destiny, and he knew he was the person for that. You read his memoirs, his books, and the people that knew him. They interviewed over 130 potential candidates to take that flight, John Glenn being one of them. I guess he was probably one of the last ones. And he sat there and did the interview like everyone else, and here's the confidence and the bravado of a man who knows his destiny and knows this is where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do. They said, well, that's fine. Thank you. We'll evaluate and we'll get the, the results back to you on who the candidate was going to be. John Glenn sat there and said, well, fine, I will be the candidate and I'd like to see the blueprints of the rocket right now. You know, I think wanted, about that. I want to add one more thing about John Glenn, uh, and that is that by the time this broadcast is aired uh, for our audience, that uh, John Glenn will take his rightful place because he is going to be laid to rest at Arlington National Cemetery. I just learned that oh, today wow. before Good. the broadcast. What an honor. So uh, this is something that uh, is appropriate, and it and uh, it reminds us all that as we say, Godspeed, John Glenn. May your memory be eternal from a grateful nation. Absolutely, George. We're going to wrap up. And in my own opinion, if there was one space available at Arlington, it should go to John Glenn. And I'm glad I'm glad he made it there. I, I, it's incredible. What an honor. Man. But we're going to wrap up this story, or this story and this show. Actually, we got to the 60 minutes really quick, folks. And again, thanks for listening to the show. And uh, we covered we went a lot of, not a lot we went a few directions today you're listening to galaxy moonbeam night site and uh it's been great here in the studio it started out freezing cold in here and it got warm but in the words of the famous john glenn zero g's and i feel fine uh that's a wrap up tonight or today rather and we hope that you folks will continue listening not only to this show but to the almost 200 other shows we're getting very close to 200 shows and we're very proud of that fact, but we dearly, dearly appreciate you listeners and the folks who pass along our uh, our shows to the other people. It shows on our on our statistics, and we do appreciate that. It makes it fun, and it makes it rewarding, and it energizes to come in here and keep producing these shows to deliver you folks to bring those memories back that are so dear to us. Galaxy Moonbeam Night Sight here. You can catch us on Facebook. We prefer you to come to Facebook because that's usually where we talk. Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight is our Facebook page. GalaxyMoonbeamNightsight.com is our website. Galaxy Moonbeam Nightsight, S-I-T-E at Gmail is our email. And you can always go to Apple iTunes Store and put Baby Boomer Radio, and you will see all of our shows. They're there free. They're there for the taking. Listen to one or all or the favorites, and give us some feedback on how we're doing. In the meantime, I'm Mike. I'm Smitty. And I'm George. And we're all here thanking you from the bottoms of our hearts here for joining us as a member of our family here at Galaxy. We'll talk again soon to you. Take care. Bye-bye. This is the Galaxy Nostalgia Network.